Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Starborn by Andrea Norton. Volume 5, Chapter 10, The Dead Guardians The spaceman spent a cramped and almost sleepless night. Although in his training on Terra and on his trial trips to Mars and the harsh lunar valleys, Rafe had known weird surroundings and climates inimical to his kind, He'd always been able to rest almost by the exercise of his will. But now, curled in his role, he was alert to every sound out of the moonless night, finding himself listening for what he did not know. Though there were sounds in plenty, the whistling call of some night bird, the distant lap-lap of water that he associated with the river curving through the long-deserted city, the rustle of grass as either the wind or some passing animal disturbed it. Not the best place in the world for a nap, Suriki observed out of the dark as Rafe wriggled, trying to find a more comfortable position. I'll be glad to see these bandaged boys on the ground waving goodbye as we head away from them. Fast. Those weren't animals they killed. Back on that island, Rafe brought out what was at the heart of his trouble. They wore fur instead of clothing. Suriki's reply was delivered in a colorless, even voice. We have apes on Terra, but they're not men. Rafe stared up at the sky in which stars were sprinkled like carelessly flung dust motes. But what is a man? He returned, repeating the classical question that was the debating point in all the space training centers. For so long his kind had wondered that. Was a man a biped with certain easily recognized physical characteristics? Well, by that ruling, the furry things that had fled fruitlessly from the flames of the globe might well qualify. Or was man a certain level of intelligence, no matter what form housed that intelligence? They were supposed to accept the latter definition, though in spite of the horror of prejudice, Rafe could not help but believe that too many Terrans secretly thought of man as only a creature in their own general image. By that prejudiced rule, it was correct to accept the aliens as men with whom they could ally themselves, to condemn the furry people because they were not smooth-skinned, did not wear clothing, nor ride in mechanical transports. Yet somewhere within Rafe at that moment was the nagging feeling that this was all utterly wrong, that the Terrans had not made the right choice, and that now men were not standing together. But he had no intention of spilling that out to Sariki. Man is intelligence. The contact was answering the question that Rafe had almost forgotten that he had asked the moment before. Yes, the proper conventional reply. Sariki was not going to be caught out with any claim of prejudice. Odd. When Pax had ruled, there were thought police, and the cardinal sin was to be a liberal, to experiment, to seek knowledge. Now the wheel had turned. To be conservative was suspect. To suggest that some old ways were better was to exhibit the evil signs of prejudice. Rafe grinned wryly. Sure, he had wanted to reach the stars, had fought doggedly to come to the very spot where he was now. So why was he tormented now with all these second thoughts? Why did he feel every day less akin to the men with whom he had shared the voyage? He had had wit enough to keep his semi-rebellion under cover, but since he had taken the flitter into the morning sky above the landing place of the spacer, that task of self-discipline was becoming more and more difficult. 
Did you notice? The contact said, going off on a new track. That these painted boys were not too quick about blasting along to their strong box? I'd say they thought some bright rocket jockey might have rigged a surprise for them somewhere in there. Now that Sariki mentioned it, Rafe remembered that the alien party who had gone into the city had huddled together and that several of the black and white warriors had fanned out ahead as scouts might in enemy territory. They didn't go any farther than that building to the west either. That Rafe had not noticed, but he was willing to accept Sariki's observation. The contact had a ready eye for details. He'd better pay closer attention himself. This was no time to explore the why and wherefore of his present position. So if they went no farther than that building, it would argue that the aliens themselves didn't care to go about here after nightfall, for he was certain that the isolated structure Sariki had pointed out was not the treasure house they had come to loot. The night wore on, and sometime during it, Rafe fell asleep. But the two or three hours of restless, dream-filled unconsciousness was not what he needed, and he blinked in the dawn with eyes that felt as if they were filled with hot sand. In the first gray light, a covey of winged things, which might or might not have been birds, arose from some roosting place within the city, wheeled three times over the building, and then vanished out over the countryside. Rafe pulled himself out of his roll, made a sketchy toilet with the preparations in his belt kit, and looked about with little favor for either the scene or his part in it. The globe, sealed as if ready for a takeoff, was some distance away, but installed about halfway between it and the flitter were two of the alien warriors. Perhaps they had changed watches during the night. If they had not, they could go without sleep to an amazing degree. For as Rafe walked in a circle about the flyer to limber up, they watched him closely. Nor did their grips on their odd weapons loosen, and he had a very clear idea that if he stepped over some invisible boundary, he would be in trouble. When he came back to the flitter, Sariki was awake and stretching. Another day, the contact drawled, and I could do with something besides field rations. He made a face at the small tin of concentrates he had dug out of the supply compartment. We'd do well to be headed west, Rafe ventured. Well, now you can come in with that out of calm again, Sariki answered with unwanted emphasis. Sooner I see the old girl standing on her pins in the middle distance, the better I'll feel. You know, he looked up from his preoccupation with the ration package and gazed out over the city. This place gives me the shivers. That other town was bad enough, but at least there were people living there. Here, there's nothing at all. At least nothing I want to see. What about all the wonders they promised to show us? countered Rafe. Sariki grinned. And how much do we understand of their mouth and hand talk? Maybe they were promising us wonders, and maybe they were offering to take us to where we could have our throats cut more conveniently for them. I tell you, if I go for a walk with any of these painted faces, I'm going to have at least three of my fingers resting on the grip of my stun gun. I advise you do the same. If I didn't know that you were already watching these blast-happy harpies out of the corner of your eye. Well, oh, hey, company, it's the captain. The hatch of the globe had opened, and a small party was descending the ladder, conspicuous among them the form and uniform of Captain Hobart. The aliens remained in a cluster at the foot of the ladder, while the Terran commander crossed the flitter. You, he pointed to Rafe, you're going to come along with us. Why, sir? What about me, sir? 
The questions from the two with the flitter came together. I said that one of you had to remain by the machine. Then they said that you in particular had to come along, Kirby. But I'm the pilot, and... Rafe began, and then he realized it was just that fact that made the aliens attach him to the exploring party. If they believed that the Terran flitter was immobilized when he, and he alone, was not behind his controls, this was just the move they would make. But they were wrong. Suriki might not be able to repair or service the motor, but in a pinch he could take it up and send it westward and land it beside the spacer. Each and every man aboard the RS-10 had that much training. Now the Comtech was scowling. He had grasped the significance of that arrangement as quickly as Rafe had. How long do I wait for you, sir? He asked in a voice that had lost its usual good-humored drawl. At that inquiry, Captain Hobart showed signs of irritation. Your suspicions are not founded on facts, he stated firmly. These people have displayed no signs of wanting to harm us and an attitude of distrust at this point might be fatal for future friendly contact. Lablet is sure they have a highly complex society, probably advanced beyond human standards, and that their technical skills will be of vast benefit to us. As it happens, we have come at just the right moment in their history, when they're striving to get back on their feet after a disastrous series of wars. It's as if a group of off-world explorers had allied themselves with us after the burn-off, we can exchange information that will be of mutual benefit. If any off-world explorers had set down on Terra after the burn-off, observed Siriki softly, they would have come up against Pax, and just how long do you think they would have lasted? Hobart had turned away. If he had heard that half-whisper, he did not choose to acknowledge it. But the truth in the context words made an impression on Rafe. A crew of aliens who had been misguided enough to seek out and try to establish friendly relations with the officials of Pax, would have had a short and most unhappy shrift. If all the accounts of that dark dictatorship were true, they would have vanished from Terra, and not in their ships either. What if something like Pax ruled here? They had no way of knowing for sure. Rafe's eyes met Sariki's, and the Comtech's hand dropped to hook fingers in his belt, Within touching distance of his sidearm, the flitter pilot nodded. Kirby! Hobart's impatient call sent him on his way, but there was some measure of relief in knowing that Suriki was left behind and that they had this slender link with escape. He had tramped the streets of that other alien city. There, there had been some semblance of habitation. Here was complete abandonment. Earth drifted in dunes to half-block the lanes, and here and there climbing vines had broken down masonry and dislodged blocks of the paved sideways and courtyards. The party threaded their way from one narrow lane to another, seeming to avoid the wider, open stretches of the principal thoroughfares. Rafe became aware of an unpleasant odor in the air that he vaguely associated with water, and a few minutes later he caught glimpses of the river between the buildings that fronted on it. Here the party turned abruptly at a right angle, heading westward once more, passing vast blank-walled structures that might have been warehouses. One of the aliens just ahead of Rafe in line of march suddenly swung around, his weapon pointing up, and from its nose shot a beam of red-yellow light that brought an answering shrill scream as a large winged creature 
came fluttering down. The killer kicked at the crumpled thing as he passed. As far as Rafe could see, there had been no reason for that wanton slaying. The head of the party had reached a doorway, sealed shut by what looked like a solid slab of material. He placed both palms flat down on its surface, at shoulder height, and leaned forward against it, almost as if he were whispering some secret formula. Rafe watched the muscles stand up on his slender arms as he exerted strength, and then the door split in two, and his fellows helped him push the separate halves back into the wall. Lablet, Hobart, and Rafe were among the last to enter. It was as if their companions had now forgotten them for the moment, for the aliens were pushing out at a pace that took them down an empty corridor at a quickening trot. The corridor ended in a ramp that did not slope in one straight reach, but curled around itself so that in some places only the presence of a handrail, to which they all clung, kept them from losing balance. Then they gathered in a vaulted room, which opened a complete circle of closed doors. There was some argument among the aliens, a dispute of sorts over which of those doors was to be opened first, and the Terrans drew a little apart, unable to follow the twittering words and lightning-swift gestures. Rafe tried to work out the patterns of color that swirled and looped over each door and around the walls, only to discover that too long an examination of any one band or an attempt to trace its beginning or end awoke a sick sensation that approached inner turmoil the longer he looked. At last he had to rest his eyes by studying the gray flooring under his boots. The aliens finally made up their minds, or else one group was able to out-argue the other, for they converged upon a door directly opposite the ramp. Once more they went through the process of unsealing the panels, while the Terrans, drawn by curiosity, were close behind them as they entered the long room beyond. Here were shelves in solid tiers along the walls, crowded with such an array of strange objects that Rafe, after one mystified look, thought it might well take months to sort them all out. In addition, long tables divided the chamber into aisles. Halfway down one of these narrow passageways, the aliens had gathered in a group, as silent and intent now as they had been noisy outside. Rafe could see nothing to so rivet their attention but a series of scuffed marks in the dust that covered the floor. But an alien whom he recognized as the officer, who had taken him to inspect the globe, moved carefully along that trail, following it to a second door. And as Rafe pushed down another aisle, paralleling his course, he was conscious of a sickly sweet, stomach-churning stench. Something was very, very dead, and not too far away. The officer must have come to the same conclusion, for he hurried to open the other door. Before them was a narrow hall broken by slit windows, near the roof through which entered sunlight, and one such beam fully illuminated a carcass as large as that of a small elephant, or so it seemed to Rafe's startled gaze. It was difficult to make out the true appearance of the creature, though guessing from the scaled strips of skin it had been reptilian, for the body had been found by scavengers and feasting had been in progress. The alien officer skirted the corpse gingerly. Rafe thought that he would like to investigate the body closely, but could not force himself to that highly disagreeable task. There was a chorus of excited exclamations from the doorway as others crowded there. But the officer, having circled the carcass, turned his attention to the dusty floor again. If there had been any trail there, it was now muddled past their reading, for remnants of the grisly meal had been dragged back and forth. The alien picked his way fastidiously through the noxious debris to the end of the long room. 
Rafe, with the same care, tore the edge of the chamber in his wake. They were out in a smaller passageway that was taking them underground. The Terran estimated that there was a large space with barred cells about it and a second corridor. The stench of the death chamber either clung to them or was wafted from another point, and Rafe gagged as an especially foul blast caught him full in the face. He kept a sharp look about him for signs of those feasters. The feast had not been finished. It might have been that their entrance into the storeroom had disturbed the scavengers, and things formidable enough to drag down that scaled horror were not foes he would choose to meet in these unlit ways. The passage began to slope upward once more, and Rafe saw a half-moon of light ahead, brilliant light that could only come from the sun. The alien was outlined there as he went out. Then he himself was scuffing through sand close upon another death scene. The dead monster had had its counterparts, and here they were, sprawled out, mangled, and torn. Rafe remained by the archway, for even the open air and the morning winds could not destroy the reek that seemed as deadly as a gas attack. It must have disturbed the officer, too, for he hesitated. Then, with visible effort, he advanced toward the hunks of flesh, casting back and forth, as if to find some clue as to the manner of their death. He was still so engaged when a second alien burst out of the archway, a splintered length of white held out before him, as if he had made some important discovery. The officer grabbed that shaft away from him, turning it around in his hands, and though expression was hard to read on those thin features under the masking face paint, the emotion, his whole attitude, was a surprise tinged with unbelief, as if the object his subordinate had brought was the last he expected to find in that place. Rafe longed to inspect it, but both aliens brushed by him and pattered back down the corridor, the discoverer pouring forth a volume of words to which the officer listened with great intentness, and the Terran pilot had to hurry to keep up with them. Something he had seen just before he left the arena remained in his mind, a forearm flung out from the supine body of what appeared the largest of the dead things, and on that forearm a bracelet of metal. Were those things pets? Watchdogs? Surely they were not intelligent beings able to forge and wear such ornaments of their own accord, and if they were watchdogs, whom did they serve? He was inclined to believe that the aliens must be their masters, that the monsters had been guardians of the treasure, perhaps, but dead guardians suggested a rifled treasure house. Who were what, then? his mind filled with speculations and questions. Rafe trotted behind the others back to the chamber where they had found the first reptile. The alien who had brought the discovery to his commander stepped gingerly through the litter and laid the white rod in a special spot, apparently the place where it had been found. At a barked order from the officer, two of the others came forward and tugged at the creature's mangled head, which had been freed from the serpent neck, rolling it over to expose the underparts, there was a broad tear there in the flesh, but Rafe could see little difference between it and those left by the feasters. However, the officer, holding a strip of cloth over his nose, bent stiffly above it for a closer look, and then made some statement which sent his command into a babbling clamor. Four of the lower ranks separated from the group, and with their hand weapons at alert, swung into action, retracing the way back toward the arena. It looked to Rafe as if they now expected an attack from that direction. Under a volley of orders, the rest went back to the storeroom, and the officer, noting that Rafe still lingered, 
waved him impatiently after them. Inside the med spread out, going from shelf to table, selecting things with a speed that suggested that they had been rehearsed in this task and had only a limited time in which to accomplish it. Some took piles of boxes or other containers that were so light they could manage a half dozen in an armload, while two or three others struggled pantingly to move a single piece of weird machinery from its bed to the wheeled trolley they had brought. There was to be no lingering on this job. That was certain. Chapter 11. Espionage Intent upon joining Sasori, Dalgard left the lock, forgetting his earlier unwillingness, stepping from the small chamber down to the sea bottom, or endeavoring to, although instinctively he had begun to swim, and so forged ahead at a different rate of speed. Waving fronds of giant water plants, such as were found only in the coastal shallows, grew forest fashion, but did not hide rocks that stretched up in a sharp rise not too far ahead. The scout could not see the merman, but as he held on to one of those fronds, he caught the other's summons. Here, by the rocks. Pushing his way through the drifting foliage, Dalgard swam ahead to the foot of the rocky escarpment, and there he saw what had so excited his companion. Sasuri had just driven away an encircling collection of sand-dwelling scavengers, and what he was on his knees studying intently was an almost clean-picked skeleton of one of his own race. But there was something odd. Dalgard brushed aside a tendril of weed that caught his line of vision, and so was able to see clearly. White and clean most of those bones were, but the skull was blackened, and similar charring existed down one arm and a shoulder. The merman had not died from any mishap in the sea. It, it is, is so, Sasuri replied to his thought. They, they have, have come, come once more to give the flaming death. Dalgard startled looked up that slope that must lead to the island top above the waves. Long, Long dead? He asked tentatively, already guessing what the other's answer would be. The, the pickers, pickers move fast. Sasuri indicated the sand dwellers. Perhaps yesterday, perhaps the day before, but no longer than that. And you think they're up there now? Who can tell? However, they do not know the sea, nor the islands. It was plain the merman intended to climb to investigate what might be happening above. Dalgard had no choice but to follow. And it was true that the merpeople had no peers or equals when it came to finding their way about the sea and the coasts. He was confident that Sasori could get to the island top and discover just what he wished to learn without a single century above, if they had stationed sentries, being the wiser. Whether he himself could operate as efficiently was another matter. In the end, they half-climbed, half-swam upward, detouring swiftly once to avoid the darting attack of a rock hornet, harmless as soon as they moved out of its reach, for it was anchored for its short life to the rough hollow in which it had been hatched. Dalgard's head broke water as he rolled through the surf onto a scrap of beach in the lee of a row of tooth-pointed outcrops. It was late evening by the light, and he clawed the mask off his face to draw thankful lungfuls of the good outer air. Sasuri, first sleek tight to his body, waded ashore, shook himself free of excess water, and turned immediately to study the wall of the cliff that guarded the interior of the island. This was one of a chain of such aisles, Dalgard noted, 
now that he had had the time to look about him. And with their many creviced walls, they were just the type of habitations that appealed most strongly to the people. Here could be found the dry inner caves with underwater entrances that they favored for their group homes, and in the sea were kelp beds for harvesting. The cliffs did not present too much of a climbing problem. Dalgard divested himself of his diving equipment, tucking it into a hollow which he walled up with stones that he thought the waves would not scour out in a hurry. He might need it again. Then, hitching his belt tighter, pressing what water he could out of his clothing, and settling his bow and quiver to the best advantage at his back, he crossed to where Sasuri was already marking claw holds. You know, we may be seen. Dalgard craned his neck, trying to make out details of what might be waiting above. The merman shook his head with a quick jerk of negation. They are gone. Behind them remains only death. Much death. And the bleakness of his thoughts reached the scout. Dalgard had known Sasuri since he was a toddler, and the other a cub coming to see the wonders of dry land for the first time. Never during all their years of close association since had he felt in the other a desolation so great, and to that emotional blast he could make no answer. In the twilight, with the last red banners across the sky at their back, they made the climb, and it was as if the merman had closed off his mind to his companion. Flesh fingers touched scaled ones as they moved from one hole to the next, but Sasori might have been half a world away for all the communication between them. Never had Dalgard been so shut out, and with that his sensitivity to the night, to the world about him, was doubly acute. He realized, and it worried him, that perhaps he had come to depend too much on Sasori's superior faculty of communication. It was time that he tried to use his own weaker powers to the utmost extent. So while he climbed, Dalgard sent questing thoughts into the gloom. He located a nest of duck dogs, those shy, water-lined fishers living in the cliff holes. They were harmless and just settling down for the night, but of higher types of animals from which something might be learned. Hoppers, runners, there were no traces. For all he was able to pick up, they might be climbing into blank nothingness. And that in itself was ominous. Normally he would have been able to mind-touch more than duck dogs. The merpeople lived in peace with most of the higher fauna of their world, and a colony of hoppers, even a covey of mothbirds, would settle in close by a mer-tribe to garner in the remnants of feasts and protection from the flying dragons and the other dangers they must face. They hunt all life. The first break in Sasuri's self-absorption came. Where they walk, the little harmless peoples face only death, and so it has been here. He had pulled himself over the rim of the cliff, and through the dark, Dalgard could hear him panting with the same effort that had made his own lungs labor. Just as the stench of the snake devil's lair had betrayed its sight, here, disaster and death had an odor of their own. Dalgard retched before he could control throat and stomach muscles, but Sasuri was unmoved, as if he had expected this. Then, to Dalgard's surprise, the merman set up the first real call he had ever heard issue from that furred throat, a plaintive whistle that had a crooning, summoning note to it, akin to the mind touch in an odd fashion, and yet audible. They sat in silence for a long moment, the human's ears as keen for any sound out of the night as those of his companion. Why did Sasori not use the customary noiseless greeting of his race? 
When he beamed that inquiry, he met once again that strange, solid wall of non-acceptance that had enclosed the merman as they climbed, as if now there was danger to be feared from following the normal ways. Again, Sasori whistled, and in that cry, Dalgard heard a close resemblance to the flute tone of the night mothbirds. Up the scale, the notes ran with mournful persistence. When the answer came, the scout had first thought that the imitation had lured a mothbird, for the reply seemed to ripple right above their heads. Sasori stood up, and his hand dropped on Dalgard's shoulder, applying pressure which was both a warning and a summons, bringing the scout to his feet with as little noise as possible. The horrible smell caught at his throat, and he was glad when the merman did not head inland toward the source of that odor, but started off along the edge of the cliff, one hand in Dalgard's to draw him along. Twice more, Sasori paused to whistle, and each time he was answered by a signing note or two that seemed to reassure him. Against the lighter expanse that was the sea, Dalgard saw the loom of a peak that projected above the file general level of the island. Though he knew that the merpeople did not build above ground, being adept in turning natural caves and crevices into the kind of living quarters they found most satisfactory, the barrenness of this particular rock top was forbidding. Led by Sasori, he threaded a tangled patch among the outcrops, once squeezing through a gap that scraped the flesh on his arms as he wriggled. Then the sky was blotted out, the last winking star disappeared, and he realized that he must have entered a cave of sorts, or was at least under an overhang. The merman did not pause, but padded on, tugging Dalgard along, the scout's boots scraping on the rough footing. The colonist was conscious now that they were on an incline, heading down to the heart of the island. They came to a stretch where Sasori set his hands on holds, patiently shoved his feet into hollowed places, finding for him the ladder steps he could not see, that took him through a sweating, fearful journey of yards to another level, another sloping downward way. Here at long last was a fraction of light, not the violent glimmer that had illuminated the underground ways of those others, but a ghostly radiance that he recognized as the lamps of the mermen, living creatures from the sea depths, imprisoned in laboriously fashioned globes of crystal, kept in the caves where the light they yielded. But still there was no mind touch. Never had Dalgard penetrated into the cave cities of the sea folk before without inquiries, an open welcome lapping about him. Were they entering a place of massacre where no living merman remained? Yet there was that whistling that had led Sasori here in the first place. And in that moment, a shrill keening note arose from the depths to ring in Dalgard's ears, startling him so much that he lost his footing. Once again, Sasori made answer vocally, but no mind touch. Then they rounded a curve, and the scout was able to see into the heart of the amphibian territory. This was a natural cave, as were all the merman's dwellings, but its walls had been smoothed and hung with the garlands of shells that they wove in their leisure into strange pictures. Silver-gray sand, smooth and dust-fine, covered the floor to the depth of a foot or more. Opening off the main chamber were small nooks, each marking the private storage place and holding of some family clan. It was a large place, and with a quick estimate, Dalgard thought it had been fashioned to harbor close to a hundred inhabitants. At least the nook suggested that many. But gathered at the foot of the ledge they were descending, spears poised, 
were perhaps ten males, some hardly past cubhood, others showing the snowy shine of fur that was the badge of age. Behind them, drawn knives in their ready hands, were half again as many mer-women, forming a protective wall before a crouching group of cubs. Sosori spoke to Dalgard. Spread your hands, empty, so that they may see them clearly. The scout obeyed, and the limited light his ten fingers were fans. It was then that he understood the reason for such a move. If these mermen had not seen a colonist before, he might resemble those others in their eyes. But only his species on all of Astra had five fingers and five toes, and that physical evidence might ensure his safety now. Why do you bring a destroyer among us? Or do you offer him for our punishment, so that we can lay upon him the doom that his kind have earned? The question came with arrow force, and Dalgard held out his hands, hoping they would see the difference before one of those spears from below tore through his flesh. Look upon the hands of this, my knife brother. Look upon his face. He is not of the race of those you hate, but rather one from the south. Have you of the northern regions not heard of those who help those who came from the stars? We have heard. But there was no relaxing of tension, and not a spear point wavered. Look upon his hands, Sosori insisted. Come into his mind, for he speaks with us so. Do they do that? Dalgard tried to throw open his mind, awaiting the trial. It came quickly. Traces of inimical, alien thought, the change that they touched his mind, reading there only the friendliness that he and his people held for the sea people. He is not of them. The admission was grudging, as if they did not want to believe that. Why comes one from the south to this place now? There was an inflection to that now that was disturbing. After the manner of his people, he seeks new things so that he may return and report to his elders. Then he will receive the spear of manhood and be ready for the choosing of mates. Sasori translated the reason for Dalgard's quest into the terms of his own people. He has been my knife brother since we were cubs together, and so I journeyed with him. But here in the north we have found evil. His flow of thought was submerged by a band of hate so red that its impact upon the mind was almost a blow. Dalgard shook his head. He had known that the merpeople aroused were deadly fighters, fearless and crafty, and with a staying power beyond that of any human, but their rage was something he had never met before. They come again! They burn with fire! They are among our islands! A cub whimpered, and a merwoman stooped to pat it to silence. Here they have killed with fire! They did not elaborate upon that statement, and Dalgard had no wish for them to do so. He was still very glad it had been dark when he had climbed to the top of that cliff, that he had not been able to see what his imagination told him lay there. Do they stay? That was Sasuri. No. In their sky traveler they go to the land where lies the dark city. There they make much evil against the day when this shall be their land once more. But these lie if they think that. Another strong thought broke across the current of communication. 
We are not penned for their pleasure. We may flee into the sea once more, and there live as did our fathers' fathers, and they dare not follow us there. Who knows? It was Sisuri who raised that objection. With their ancient knowledge once more theirs, even the depths of the sea may not be ours much longer. Do they not know how to ride upon the air? The knot of mer-warriors stirred. Several spears thudded butt down into the sand, and Sasuri accepted that as an invitation to descend, summoning Dalgard after him with a beckoning finger. Later they sat in a circle in the cushioning gray powder, the two from the south eating dried fish and sea kelp, while Sasuri related between mouthfuls their recent adventures. Three times have they flown across these islands on their way to the city. The elder of the pitifully decimated mermen told the explorers. But this time they had with them a new ship. A new ship? Sasori pounced upon that scrap of information. Yes, the ships of the air in which they travel are fashioned so. With his knife point he drew a circle in the sand. But this one was smaller and more in the likeness of a spear with a heavy point. Thus! He made a second sketch beside the first, and Dalgard and Sasuri leaned over to study it. That is unlike any of their ships I have ever heard of, Sasuri agreed. Even in the old tales of the days before the burning, there is nothing spoken of like that. It is true. Therefore we wait now for the coming of our scouts, who were sent in hiding upon their sea rock of resting, that they may tell us more concerning this new ship. They should be here within this time of sleeping. Now go you to rest that you plainly have need of, and we shall call you when they come. Dalgard was willing enough to stretch out in the sand, in the shadows of the far end of the cave. Beyond him three cubs slumbered together, their arms around each other, and a feeling of peace was there such as he had not known since he had left the stronghold of Homeport. The weird glow of the imprisoned sea monsters gave light to the main part of the cave, and it might still have been night when the scout was shaken awake once more. A group of the people were sitting together, and their thoughts interrupted each other as their excitement rose. Their spies must have returned. Dalgard crossed to join that group, but it seemed to him that his welcome was not unqualified and that some of the openness of the early hours of the night was lacking, he might have been once more under suspicion. Knife, brother. To Dalgard's sensitive mind, that form of address from Sasori was used for a special purpose, to underline the close bond between them. Listen, Listen to, to the, the words, words of Sisim, who is a hider to watch on the island where they rest their ships during the voyage from one land to another. He drew Dalgard down beside him to face a young merman who was staring round-eyed at the colony scout. He is like, yet unlike. His first wisp of thought meant nothing to the scout. The strangers wear many coverings on their bodies as they do, but they had also coverings upon their heads. They were bigger. Also from their minds I learned they are not of this world. Not of this world, Dalgard burst out in his own speech. There, 
The spy was triumphant. So did they talk to one another, not with the mind, but by making mouth noises, different mouth noises from those that they make. Yes, they are like, but unlike this one. And the strangers flew the ship we have not seen before. It is so, but they did not know the way and were guided by the globe, and at least one among them was distrustful of those and wished to be free to return to his own place. He walked by the rocks near my hiding place, and I read his thoughts. No, they were with them, but they are not of them. And now they have gone to the city. Sussuri probed. It was the way their ship flew. Like me, Dalgard repeated, and then the truth that might lie behind that exploded behind his brains. Terrans, he breathed the word. Men of Pax, perhaps, who had come to hunt down the outlaws who had successfully eluded their rule on Earth? But how had the colonists been traced, and, and why? Or were they other fugitives like themselves? So much, so very much of what the colonists should have known of their past had been erased during the time of the Great Sickness twenty years after their landing. Then, three-fourths of the original immigrants had died. Only the children of the second generation and a handful of weakened elders had remained. Knowledge was lost and some distorted by failing memories. Old skills were gone. But if there were new Terrans in the city, he had to know. To know and be able to warn his people. For the darkness of Pax was a memory they had not lost. I must see them, he said. That is true. Only you can tell us what manner of folk these strangers be, the merman chief agreed. Therefore, you shall go ashore with my warriors and look upon them to tell us the truth. Also, we must learn what they do here. It was decided that using waterways known to the merpeople that Dalgard could also take wearing the diving equipment that a scouting party would head shoreward the next day, with the river itself providing the entrance into the heart of the Forbidden Territory. <laughs>